From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, if Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Lovely to have you along for this first episode of Turn Up The Volume, looking ahead to some brilliant shows coming to the stables in the coming weeks. We'll head to Idaho to speak to jazz legend Curtis Steigers. I love the stables. I mean, I talk about the stables a lot. Even in interviews, people ask me, you know, what are your favorite venues? And I'll say it was really fun to play at Wembley Stadium, but there's this place in Wavenden. They'll say, Wavenden? I say, well, it's kind of Milton Keynes, but it's not really. I love the place. It's it's state-of-the-art, top-notch quality, and yet it's so small and beautiful and intimate. I really adore the place. Curtis will play a song in session for us, and we'll stop off in Manhattan to hear from the wonderful Nell Bryden. And if it weren't so gratifying to wake up in the morning and write a song that did not exist when you woke up, and then by the end of the day, there it is. If that weren't still such a driving force for me, like that idea that from nothing, something, I think I would have given up a long time ago because it's just a hard life. And guitar virtuoso Antonio Forcioni chats to us from Southern Italy. Very cleverly, my dad, a few months later, he brought at home a guitar, an old second-hand guitar. Get very close to me and say, try this, my son. The guitar looked a bit boring. I felt a little bit boring, but uh, it took me a couple of years to get into it. And uh, once I got into it, I thought there was nothing better than playing guitar. Monica Ferguson, chief executive of The Stables, will pop by to give us the story behind this iconic venue. And head of programming, Alison Young, will tell us about the show she's looking forward to seeing in May. That's all coming up in this episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. Great local venue, small, perfectly formed, great atmosphere. It's something really different and it's really local. It's just such a cosy, intimate environment. I get to see bands that I first saw 50 years ago. Great eclectic mix of music and a really lovely community. And if those stables regulars are not enough to make you want to come here, hopefully the next hour or so will inspire you to do so, whether for the first time or, or like me, the latest in a, a long line of great gigs you've seen here. I've been coming here for many, many years and I interviewed so many of the artists who play here during the decade I was on the radio on the BBC. There's something really special about the stables and I really hope that these monthly podcasts give you a real flavour of what you can enjoy here. Audiences love coming here as much as artists love playing here. And in today's podcast, we've got three artists who have a long, long history of performing at the stables. I've got an absolutely gorgeous chat with Nell Bryden coming up shortly. But first, Curtis Steigers, one of the world's truly great jazz performers and a man who would happily cite the stables as one of his favourite venues in the world, so much so that he's playing two shows here at the end of May. Not many tickets left, and, and that's no surprise. He's a wonderful live performer, putting his unique jazz spin on his own classic songs and on great songs by other artists. Uh, 2022's album This Life had Curtis sounding, in my eyes, better than ever. And you're in for a real treat when he comes to the stables. I spoke to him from his kitchen in Idaho and started by suggesting to him that in all the years that I followed him, he's never seemed as happy in his skin, whether that's musically speaking or personally. I would say that's a fair assessment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old now. I'm, I'm not afraid to say it. Um, I've, I've had, uh, I've, I've got some life behind me now and, uh, um, I have figured out a way to maintain my career as a touring artist and a, a recording artist and still, you know, have a home still, you know, I still, uh, you know, make the bed and wash the dishes and pick up the dog poo and everything else I need to do. Um, 
uh, yeah, I, 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 I also think strangely that the, the, that COVID, that, um, the lockdown or whatever, the, 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 the plague, as I call it, uh, sort of helped me figure out a few things about myself. I learned a lot about myself while I was sitting around with the dogs, not doing anything for a year and a half. And, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm, 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 I've, I'm finding my way. Then again, you know, musically, I'm always looking for something new. So it's not like I've, I'm going to settle here. I've, I'm, 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 I'm certain to do different things that will confuse people and, and confound my publicists and managers <laughs> uh, musically in the next uh, year or two. Let's talk about some of those some of those confusing things and and talk to me about Gentlemen. We'll go back an album to start because it's an album which actually intrigues me a lot. We we hear so much about toxic masculinity. We look at some of the the role models that our sons have, sometimes in the highest offices of state, without getting too political. Uh, and this album felt to me like a an antidote to that. That it was almost like a a plea for a healthier view of what really makes a man. Well, certainly, certainly the song. Certainly, the song "Gentlemen," um, the the title track of that album, uh, was a, a an answer or an antidote to the Trump anger to that to to that uh, fake masculinity thing. You know, we were my, my co writer David Poe and I, great great singer songwriter David Poe and I wrote that song, and we were we were looking to sort of figure out what it was to be a man. Uh, you know, after after all of this bluster and silliness that was going on in, in the political world. And uh, um, so that, that, was, that was our exploration of it. So strangely, we actually started that song. Um, we originally wrote that song uh, uh, for, a, for a TV show that we didn't get it into. <laughs> a friend <laughs> of mine was the, the producer of, a, of a, 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 a sort of a spy show. So we, the original version of it sounded very 007-y kind of, uh, you know, like it was going to be, it was going to be my, my, my meal ticket for the next couple of years. It didn't happen. Uh, it was going to be your bond. It, yeah. My sort of mini bond, I guess. But, uh, it was called the night manager, actually really very cool show with, with Hugh Laurie, a really wonderful, uh, mini series. Um, and, uh, since then, I've gotten to meet Hugh Laurie, who is a, a, a hero of mine. I just love, love uh, Jeeves and Wooster. And uh, I just, I love British, I love the British sensibility. I, I watched Black Adder. I watched The Fast Show. You know, this, a lot of that is because of tour buses. You know, I was on, the, on a tour bus and, the, and the, the, the bus driver would have all the cool British stuff. So I came at, uh, you know, coming to Britain as an artist with with something in mind to begin with, and it did not let me down. No, I'm a bit of a um, a Britophile. I I I I grew up loving, uh, uh, you know, British music, whether it was you know English or Scottish or Welsh or whatever. You know, I mean, I, I'm just I'm I, I was I was a fan of it. And when I got to when I started coming to the UK in the in the early '90s, um, I just it was exactly what I what I needed. I, I still I still love touring the UK. I, I get to play Ronnie Scotts in London a couple of times a year for a week at a time, and I get to be a Londoner for a, a week. So it's it's really lucky. And let's talk about the the latest album as well. Uh, this life it's uh, an album which somehow manages to to draw together all of the the varied musical strands of your career into into one really beautiful homogenous piece of work actually giving older songs a, a new lease of life with, with brand new arrangements. Yeah, this this album, this it's a look back at my 30 years in the record business, which is now, you know, 30, almost 32, because uh, 
the album's been out. The album's been out a while. I still call it my new album, of course. But uh, um, it was. I I just I I don't like doing covers of my own songs. You know, I don't like doing exact versions of how I played them in 1991 or 92. You know, and my band is completely different now than it was back in the early 90s. I tour with a, basically a jazz quartet, a acoustic piano, acoustic bass, a small drum kit. And we, we, um, we, we have cre recreated or we have created new arrangements over the years anyway. We've created these arrangements that we can play my hit songs, but in a different way. And so really these aren't new arrangements. This is this is basically this new album is like going to one of my shows. It, it we walked right into the studio and just played these songs without really having to rehearse them at all because we'd been playing them this way for for years. Uh, I'd had a lot of my fans say, "Gosh, I'd, we'd we'd love to hear you, uh, you know, record." I wonder why this new way and you're all that matters to me. This new way, and so I did, and and then added some that I felt didn't get you know, a fair shake, you know, some songs that just were on records that, that didn't, that people didn't know about that we play a lot. So, uh, but it's really, it's just a look back at, you know, what I've done for the last 30 plus years. I've been doing a thing, actually. I, I find it really interesting hearing these songs reworked. And so what I've been doing is listening to them and then going back to the originals. Um, uh -huh. There's a great cover on the album of, um, I don't want to talk about it now, Emily Harris. And when I went back to her version and you hear the sort of gentle chugging rhythm of the intro, which I'll, I'll spare our listeners uh, my version of it for now. But you hear that sort of gent gentle chugging of that intro. And I found myself suddenly realising that it was already quite jazzy in some respects. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, that record, uh, Red Dirt Girl, uh, is one uh, by Emmy Lou Harris is, is one of my favourite albums yeah. ever. I just, I think Emmy Lou Harris is such a beautiful singer. And... What I discovered on that album, Red Dirt Girl, is that Emmylou Harris is a great songwriter. You know, she's always been known as you know, someone who sings other people's songs, but she really sort of hit her stride writing at that point. Uh, that whole album just just murders me. But uh, I've done, I've now done, oh, a, 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 a few different versions of that song too. I did it as a, you know, I did it uh, originally. I just did it that as sort of a double duet with Larry Goldings, a piano player and, and organist that that uh, has co-produced a lot of my stuff. And we've written a lot of stuff together. So we did it stripped down, and then we created a more band version, which is the one that's on the new album. I'm as I said, I confuse a lot of people. I confound <laughs> my publicists and managers because I I just have a lot of different interests. I mean, I am a I, I obviously people knew me in the early '90s as a pop soul singer, and then I started. Uh, I, I pushed really hard against my record company and, and tried to make singer songwriter records, and eventually left that world and started making jazz records. But I make jazz records with with songs by singer songwriters, by country artists, by blues artists. I, I just I love songs. That's the, probably the first thing. Is I just have always been a fan of songs and songwriters. Um, uh, when I make these jazz records, when I make uh, whatever kind of record, uh, the song comes first. I'm always looking for a song that moves me and that I can 
I can uh, sort of sink my teeth into yeah. and, and make my own. You underplay it a little bit because you did stand up to the the legendary, the fierce uh, Clive Davis uh, when you were when you were looking to take a slightly different direction. And it got me thinking. Actually, it's interesting to have both you and Nell on this first episode of Turn Up the Volume because I think there is actually a little bit of a similarity in in your careers. You've both been part of the big machine. You've both played the game. Um, and you've both actively then decided to take very much your own paths and put creativity and creative integrity at the forefront of what you do. Well, I, I, as far as the integrity part of it, I, I mean, I could say, yeah, I've, you know, I'm, 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 I did it all for the art and, and I did, I suppose, but really I just, I'm a control freak. I just, I can't let <laughs> some guy in a suit tell me what kind of music I should play just because he thinks that maybe probably it's going to make me some money. And the, the thing is, anytime I listened to somebody in a suit who told me, if you do this, you'll make a bunch of money. I didn't, I wasn't successful. Um, and it just, it just occurred me, occurred to me at a certain point that when I've had, when I'd had success, it was when I did things because I loved it, because I wanted to do it, because I loved the music that I was playing. So I just, I just make music that I love. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I, I get physically ill when I have to play music that I don't like, um, unless they're paying me millions of dollars, yeah. which they don't. <laughs> um, so yeah, I went toe to toe with Clive Davis. Um, he ended up winning because he has a lot of money and I just have, a, I don't, but, yeah. um, but I won because I, I get to make music that I love and I can look myself in the mirror. Yeah. There's a great line. I don't know if you've seen a, a speech online, Neil Gaiman, it's called the make great art speech when he's, uh, I think he's receiving an honorary doctorate at the university of Philadelphia. And he says exactly what you just said. He said, when I look back, whenever I've started out with the intention of making money from something, it's never made me any money. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it, for me, it just doesn't work. I, people always, I mean, when I had my first couple of hits, there would, there occasionally someone would say, oh, um, that's, he just wrote that from a formula, you know, it's, it's that formulaic pops. And I'm thinking, what if I knew the formula, if I knew what a formula was for a hit song, uh, you know, I'd have written a lot more than just a couple of them. You know, I just, I, I, I just go at it instinctively. I write instinctively. I make albums instinctively. It's, I just, I just go from my heart and, and I use what tools I have as a musician, you know, I, I, and that's it. You know, it's just, for me, it's, it's all just, it's fun and games, just like it was when I was a teenager. He's just lovely, isn't he? And I've got a real treat for you later on in this episode when Curtis sings a track for us from his kitchen. It is brilliant. Stables.org if you'd like to pick up one of the remaining tickets for Curtis's show at the end of May. From the stables in Milton Keynes, this is Turn Up The Volume. And let's go from one artist with a storied history at the venue to another. And I cannot lie, one of my absolute favourite people, full stop. Nell Bryden is always a dream to interview. She's open, honest and funny. And I never tire of speaking to her. For this podcast, she spoke to me from her studio in Upper West Side, Manhattan. We covered her career, spanning 23 Radio 2 playlisted singles, the highs, the lows in her career and in her personal life. And, and Nell's story is a fascinating one, growing up with two extremely artistic parents, one an opera singer and one a painter. In fact, talking of opera, the young Nell basically wanted to be Maria Callas. And when we started our chat, I put it to Nell that the young child who really, really wanted to sing opera has come a long, long way since then. Yeah, I had a, well, my mother is a classical soprano. She's retired now, but um, 
when I was growing up, I was around classical music all the time. And, you know, she was she had this beautiful voice. Apparently, my dad said he'd be in the audience watching her sometimes and he'd sort of see these guys next to him sort of elbowing themselves when she'd come out as a soloist in front of a, an orchestra and they'd be like, there she is, there she is. And he'd be like, that's my wife. <laughs> but she had this beautiful, pure, angelic soprano, crystal clear voice. And so I always grew up around music. I would go with her on tour when I was younger. But, you know, life was sort of complicated. My parents separated and got divorced when I was five. I ended up growing up with my dad in this loft in Brooklyn. He was an artist. And so I you know, had a very bohemian, interesting upbringing, lots of paintings. My whole, my, my childhood smell that makes me, you know, feel very nostalgic is turpentine because this is my dad's painting, you know, is the studio. Um, but my mom was in a very rarefied world and I, I knew I wanted to be, it was so clear I was going to be some sort of a musician, but I think I felt this like really latent passion kind of bubbling up from within. I wanted to get this. It was like, for me, it was like sing or die or, you know, create or die. And I didn't, I didn't know what, what field that was going to take me. And there were so many possibilities, but of course, growing up around classical music, I just assumed that's what I would be doing. So I, you know, took cello when I was younger and fell in love with Maria Callas when I came across her. And I think it was really because of the passion in her voice. There's something about someone that you hear like that that just sounds like it's a it's a matter of survival when they're singing. They have to get something across from deep within, and I I thought that that's that meant that I was going to be an opera singer, but I don't have that kind of voice, and um and I don't have a really a classical voice either. I have a, you know one that I had not discovered yet at that point. So I remember going to college and thinking, well, maybe it's jazz because I heard Billie Holiday, very different style of voice than Maria Callas, obviously completely different, you know, uh, tonal quality and everything. Very minimalist, you know, but again, that sense of in the voice you can hear, there is an urgency. There is a sense of an identity which needs to be expressed in music through a voice. And that was so imperative to me that I thought, okay, well, maybe it's jazz. Maybe I'm like Sarah Vaughan or Billie Holiday or, you know, even Ella Fitzgerald, you hear her saying, it's not something that, um, it's a very different quality from Billie Holiday, which just has this heartbroken quality to the vocals. Ella Fitzgerald is like pure joy. It's like sunshine coming out of your speakers. It just sounds like there's nothing more fun for her than singing. And I love that these singers, even though they're long gone, you still hear it in their voice when they come through their speakers. It's just this person that just has a main line right into your into your heart. You mentioned the J word jazz there, but am I right in saying it was it was two other J's that that made a huge difference to you? Yes. Janice and Jimmy. And that's what changed your world. Yeah, completely. Yeah, like it was jazz was something that I thought I could study in school and I could, you know, get my head around it as a sort of institutional um, vocation. But Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix were the sort of side players that like really I was going off to party with. You know, I would be driving in my car and you know, coming coming off of a, a of a long day, you know, this sort of anxiety of being a teenager or 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 in college area, you know, that 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 horrible adolescent age, which I wouldn't go back to for any amount of money. And the people that got me through it was Janice and Jimmy. It was because they they had that same quality. Janice Joplin has that same quality in her voice. It's do or die. 
she's in it for for you know survival like she's got to express something and that really that really profoundly changed um the way that i think about music because it made it possible to um to consider a a life in music that was not in the same footsteps as my mother which i knew wasn't going to be the right way for me it was finding my own path i would imagine that anyone that's been brought up by a soprano would not want to be a soprano uh, and I say that as someone who I've dated a soprano back in the day, they are wonderful artistic beings, but uh, it's a very, very tough life and they can be very, very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably my mother was one of the less difficult people that were sopranos <laughs> and that's that's not saying a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, she's, you know, it's a very high maintenance demanding career. You can never get sick. You know, like I, I remember when I was younger and I, I like a kid, they get colds. And and as a matter of fact, the last time I played the stables a couple of years ago, my daughter had this terrible stomach flu. And, um, you know, I remember consciously uh, saying to her, come over here and hug mommy. I'm going to take care of you all night because I remembered my mother not being able to do that when I was younger because she was so terrified of getting sick as this like pure soprano. She could not get a cold. It's worse than that because, you know, you, you can go on stage at the stables and you can sing a dud note and no one's going to complain. As a soprano, you have to hit that note bang on every single time. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, my voice has changed over the years and it's sort of gotten a little more grit, a little more bluesy. As you get older, your voice shifts. And when you have an existing repertoire as a classical soprano, you have to be able to hit those same pure notes. But it should be said, Nick, that I like, (laughs) okay, it's fine if you sing a bum note at the stables here and there, but I got that massive stomach flu. (laughs) Oh, and it was like, I could not, stop throwing up like to the point where even though we made it through sound check the opening act had played I was still in the dressing room like I can't I can't actually stop so it was a very dramatic I had my own drama at that point because the poor house manager had to go up in front of all those people sold out show and he's like I'm very sorry <laughs> you have, have to go problem. home now <laughs> <laughs> talking of uh, talking of problems if you go back to those early days and you know first album very well received. World seems to be very much opening for Nell. And then album two, money runs out, disillusionment kicks in. The tricky time, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure that the <laughs> the dis- disillusionment and the money running out, I'm not sure that ever ended. <laughs> I just stayed in the game. That's all. You know, what can I say? I mean, this is such an old, you know, cliche, but the music business is a horrible, horrible business. It's terrible. And the only people that are still in it are the ones that either are profiteering off of, you know, those poor souls or the people like myself that just they can't can't do anything else. Like I just refuse to do anything else. And I think it's kind of a bit of a war of attrition. And if it weren't so gratifying to wake up in the morning and write a song that did not exist when you woke up and then by the end of the day, there it is. If that weren't still such a driving force for me like that idea that from nothing something I think I would have given up a long time ago because it's just a hard life so here's the question Uh, I guess there would have been times where you'd hope that you'd have that that massive breakthrough perhaps when uh, Cher covered one of your songs or when you supported Gary Barlow Um, but mainstream success of that level that extreme level has has never quite come so if I based on what you were just saying if I'd offered you at the beginning a short-lived burst of huge pop success, 
you know, let's say more than 15 minutes, but less than two years, um, or the sustained, critical, creative success, hard work of your long established career, what would you have taken then? That's a really hard question. And I think it depends what my bank account is doing at the time. (laughs) At the end of the the two years. (laughs) I I think that it would have been, uh, I always thought I wanted to be famous and then it didn't happen. And I realized slowly over the years that in fact, it wasn't that I wanted to be famous. It's that I wanted to have my music heard by as many people as possible. So there's still something in me that is very profound that really wants my songs to be heard by people. That is still the driving, you know, motivation. But um, it would have been tragic to have that fame and that uh, recognition and, and know that it was really meaningless because as soon as it dropped away, I would have just been the same person, but just sort of like driven over by all of these, you know, out outside forces and and I know people like that I know people that have won really big contests you know and sort of the talent contests and all that kind of stuff and then they just sort of get uh you know discarded by the end of it and then it is what it is or or they're expected to repeat that first hit and you can't chase that you know it's just like it would be that would be a different level of sort of soul destroying what ends up happening is the f- vast majority of people instead end up somewhere in the middle, which is they have a lot of talent. They love what they're, you know, they're, they love being in music, but they just can't make a career out of it. So in that regard, I feel very lucky. See, now you've got me thinking, and I wonder whether you're writing for you or singing to us, or, or is it both? Let me explain. Because you've always been very, very honest in your writing, your early songs about love and rejection, and then you went through your happier phase of marriage and being a mum and then gone full circle to look at the the loss and the change around relationships and love and divorce. So I do wonder, are, are you writing, are you creating for you or are you singing to us or is it both? That is a very profound question. That's prob- Nick, that's probably the most interesting question anyone's ever asked me in an interview. And it feels like I might need to send you a check for therapy right now because... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I write for me initially, because if it doesn't move me, then how could I possibly assume it would move anybody else? The, it starts, empathy starts from within and being moved by something, you know, a song is a sort of form of empathy, I think. Um, but then I sing, um, and when I sing and when I'm, when I'm really in that sweet spot, I'm in a flow that feels bigger than myself. It's not about me at that point. It's something that is, you know, so, I mean, so again, it's a cliche to say this, but it feels like I'm a medium at that point. It's more about something larger than me, that I get to be the instrument and deliver this, this, you know, a message or uh, emotion to other people. And it's not necessarily that I'm picturing one person driving in their car and hearing it, but sometimes I do. And other times it's just a sort of like a, you know, a vague other, but a lot of times, um, it's impossible to remove the idea of it's, you know, whether it's for me or for someone else, because I think that we're all so much more connected. I don't want to turn this into some like hippie woo-woo drum circle here, but like we are really quite connected. And one of the great joys is seeing how music uh, enhances those connections rather than showing all the differences between us all. Like when you find that somebody else is moved by the same music, you instantly feel connected to them and, and then have this, you know, 
friendship and relationship with them, like an understanding. And you've just kind of summed yourself up then now. You, you, you're honest, you're authentic, and you're really, really self-aware. And, and that's why we all love listening to your music. That's why we love watching you live coming to the stables on the 8th of July, um, a venue which on the whole has been good to you, apart from the uh, the story that you told us uh, a few moments ago. Mm. Uh, the album came out last year, Arms Around the Flame as well, which... It, it's a powerful album and, and sometimes the the relatively funky tone of it masks a, a very, very sad soul and a, and a really difficult time for you as well. And, and, and that's where music's great. It's when it manages to marry up um, different moods and, and different senses in a, in a really, really beautifully crafted piece of work. So we look forward to seeing you um, at The Stables. Uh, a venue you've got many happy memories of. Oh, well, I love the stables. It's it's the place that I started out um, in the little side room and Allison gave me a chance. And then I started doing supports for people there and then started doing headline acts. They've actually always been wonderful. And I think that they have that same theory of, you know, we'll go for real artists who are just not going for the 15 minutes of, you know, influence or fame. And, and we'll try to, you know, get connect them with an audience that really wants to hear real music. You know, you mentioned that um, album that I did last year, and I haven't actually even um, said this in any sort of PR or anything. So I think this is probably a Nick hears it first thing. But um, the whole album, Arms Around the Flame, was about, as you know, you're sort of alluding to it, it was about my divorce. And it was really cathartic for me to be able to write honestly about that. Because for a long time, I just, I felt like I couldn't. I felt like I was sort of, it was too personal, it was too close to home. And and it was going to put too many noses out of joint. So I didn't. And then I did. And it was really helpful for me to work through that. And then I got the other side of that divorce. And, you know, our, my daughter is in a much better place now. And our we're, my ex and I are co-parenting rather well together. And, and life has moved on this really beautiful way. Um, you know, I'm very happy and, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing love again. And I just feel very, very, very lucky and happy in life. And it was just the most interesting thing because um, I kind of crept back to the piano and crept back to writing and I would put my daughter to bed and then I'd come and get at my piano and just start writing. And and it wasn't for any particular purpose. It wasn't to get on the radio or get an album or anything. And then um, I had a, a trip booked over for London and I thought, oh, well, when I'm over there, I'll just get all my band together and we'll go to Conk, and, which is Ray Davies' studio in North London, so we ended up recording a whole EP. So um, it's called the Believe Again EP, and that's one of the tracks from from it. But it's it's a I mean, you talk about authenticity, like it's really where I am right now. And so you know, it's when do, just, when do we see it now? I think it'll be out just about in time for the tour to start. Um, that's the plan, you know, <laughs> if everything works according to plan, and they never do. But so it will be, but there by the time the stables is there. I like our exclusive. Nell, uh, as always, so lovely to chat to you. Uh, all being well, I'll see you at the stables on, on the 8th of July. Uh, more information about everything you're up to at www.nellbryden.com. And uh, you stay well. It's been so lovely to chat to you here on uh, Turn Up the Volume. Yeah, you and I have known each other for a long time, so it's great to hear your voice again. Now, Bryden, absolutely wonderful as always. And if you enjoyed listening to her speak, trust me, her live shows are even better. She'll be at the Stables on Saturday, the 8th of July. Tickets, of course, available via stables.org. And you can keep up to date with all of Nell's news, including the new EP, which she exclusively announced to us there, by heading to nellbryden.com. This is Turn Up the Volume from the Stables in Milton Keynes. And if you're looking for some inspiration of what to come and see in May, I've got just the person to help you. Coming up in May at the Stables in Milton Keynes. My name's Alison Young and these are my programmer picks of the month. It's been incredibly difficult to choose, but here goes. 
So one artist is making a very, very long overdue appearance. His last at the stables in 2002 is the Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith. He writes the most beautiful melodies and thoughtful, tender, bittersweet lyrics. It's not surprising his songs have been covered by Katie Lang, Elvis Costello, Emmylou Harris and many, many more. If you don't know his work, check out the songs Fallen, Whatever It Takes, or Glow in the Dark, which is currently featuring on the Stables website. We need to give him a brilliant Stables welcome so he doesn't leave it another 21 years to return. One of the joys of working at Stables is Stage 2, our smaller 80 capacity venue, which allows us to showcase emerging artists at the beginning of their careers, but also artists who are more established but are perhaps working on a new project or collaboration. So falling into that category is singer-songwriter Chris Wilde, performing with guitarist Johnny Hayes. Chris is really well known in folk circles for her work with Julie Matthews and the bands St Agnes Fountain and Daphne's Flight, who incidentally will be with us later in the year in September. I'm not going to lie, I absolutely love Chris's voice. And one of my favourite songs is her interpretation of the Julie Matthews song Ordinary Day, performed live at the National Folk Festival in Canberra. So as a treat, we'll add it to the show page on our website. Go away and enjoy. Finally, I want to mention a long-awaited concert by one of the most outstanding African musicians of his generation, Basaku Kuyati. Basaku is a master of Ngori, which is an ancient traditional lute and he's respected as part of a long lineage of griots, storytellers, musicians and upholders of the living archive of the people's traditions. He will be appearing with his band Ngoni Ba, featuring the vocalist Amy Sacco, and with whom he made his BBC Proms debut in 2013. For more information, head over to stables.org, where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the stables, volunteering or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. Back in the foyer of the Stables with uh, Stables Chief Exec Monica Ferguson. Officially, Monica, the hardest person in the world to pin down <laughs> at the moment. But it's with good cause, isn't it? Tell, tell me what's happening. Well, we're right in the thick of, um, I suppose, the final uh, preparations for F. Milton Keynes International Festival, which we founded in 2010 and which we we produce every couple of years so our next edition's in July and it's all hands on deck at the moment. Tell me about the festival. Uh, so it's it's uh, uh, basically we, we use the city as a stage and uh, it's a great chance for us to go out and, and meet people that we've maybe not met before and encountered but essentially it's, it, it starts off with uh, the, the original concept was to bring a Spiegel tent, a Belgian mirror tent, uh, into the heart of of Campbell Park in the in the in the city centre, and to put the stables on the road. So there's lots of um, music, comedy, cabaret style events that are held within the in the Spiegel tent, and and then it sort of mushroomed out into well, what else would sit round about that? So a bit like creating an Edinburgh Fringe Festival event, uh, and. Because Milton Keynes has got such a unique landscape, it felt right that actually we used the city as a stage and found artists that wanted to play in that cityscape. So we bring companies from all around the world. We bring some of the best UK companies to the city and we commission new work, especially for the festival. So 
It's a great 10 days, a very exhausting 10 days, but it's a great fun. I love this phrase mushrooming out because it actually also applies to the history of the stables, doesn't it? The, the stables, which has, has grown immeasurably from, from the early days. Talk us through the history a little bit. Cleo Lane, John Dankworth, what, what's the story here? So, uh, well, Sir John Dankworth and Dame Cleo Lane moved to Wavenden. Uh, there is a little stable block in their uh, backyard and... Uh, um, John famously, you know, kind of looked at it and went, "That's my, my, my big passion is to create a theatre." And, and really, the little stable block then had a, a shed um, put on the side of it, which um, over time became leaky. Um, then it we became the first lottery funded project outside of London, and this new theatre which we're sitting in today was was built and opened in two thousand, and it was opened by um, uh, Princess Margaret, and uh, it's it's been an amazing asset for for everyone to. To perform in. So we sat in the in the foyer. To our left is your big space. To the right is the small space. What do they both do? So the main auditorium was the one that was opened in in two thousand, and it's it's um, the brief for the for the venue was that no seat in the in the new auditorium space should be further away than it had been in the shed, effectively. And so it's a very intimate space on three sides. We've got a a thrust stage so the performers feel very close to the audience and actually uh, uh, it's it's managed to I suppose because of the heritage of John and, and Cleo's musical uh, connections but also the quality of the space attracts some amazing artists over the years you know everyone from uh, Amy Winehouse to a few weeks ago we had we had Van Morrison doing uh, you know a kind of release of his new album here for, for three days so it's 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 the the kind of I suppose the prestige artists, but ones that want to play in an intimate space rather than necessarily in an arena space. And we do quite a lot of warm-ups, even for comedy. You know, Michael McIntyre has warmed up here, for example. And that's where the small space comes into its own, doesn't it? It does. And the the small space here, that that was really one of the things that I did. One of the first jobs I did when I started here was to persuade uh, the Arts Council to donate uh, through the lottery another chunk of money for us to convert what was the original stable block and was still pine clad when I started in 2003 into this space that we've got now, which is a a small intimate space for emerging artists or for artists that want to try something out, maybe play, uh, maybe they're a rock musician, they want to play a bit jazz or they're, they want to few, have a fusion or try something new. Um, and we also do comedy in here as well. So, you know, the likes of Sarah Millican, for example, started in, in, in the small space and of course now he's playing you know huge spaces so it's very much about putting uh, it, it, it reflects the ethos of the stables which is giving people a journey of musical and artistic experiences from whether that's involving them on music camps or music tuition courses as a child or an adult through to semi-professional through to po- pointing them to you know professional um, opportunities giving them a platform to to perform on and then hopefully seeing them one day become 
famous and come back as a major, major artist and, and perform in, in the main auditorium. So. And this is, this is a key part of, of the work you do and perhaps a key part of doing this podcast as well is that, you know, with good reason for many years, the Stables was viewed as a, perhaps as a jazz venue because of the association with, with, with Dame Cleo and Sir John. Um, now it's not just about music and it's not just about live events. You, you have this whole wealth of activity around education, around the community. You really are at the heart of, uh, of your world here in Milton Keynes, aren't you? Yeah, and I think to be fair, uh, there, there was always an ethos, an underlying ethos of the charity, even in the constitution of the charity. It does talk about other art forms. And, and I, I recall there are photographs of Princess Margaret walking around the garage, of course, there, where there was an art gallery. Um, but music is at the heart of everything that we do. And, and um, even with the International Festival, music and sound, I, I always put it right at the forefront of making decisions about what artists we present. And certainly when we're doing anything, the quality of the presentation of the music is really, really important because that's our USP effectively. We are a music menu, but it's really important in terms of getting other people in to, you know, to kind of feel the space. Comedy is a great way of attracting people in for the first time. And actually the festival going out into the community to do projects that might be about making something. Um, it means that you're starting to make a connection with people and, and that's one of the things that as, as a charity we have to do. And you just really hit the nail on the head why I love the stables because it is obviously very local, it is very accessible, but the acts you put on and the way you put them on is in no way parochial. The, even just down to the quality of the sound, the quality of your PA, the, the way your volunteers are uh, of an evening uh, at a gig, it is world class. Yeah, and it, it, it's, uh, I think... Uh, again, very much impo- so important to us that we that we reflect the artists really well. Um, if you present an artist badly, they're not going to come back again, and the audience aren't going to come yeah. back again. <laughs> so it's really important that everything is 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 of the highest quality that we can make it. Of course, it's uh, we present over four hundred gigs a year, and that's a lot. You know, it's it's more than one a day, and that's because we've got two spaces plus our education projects. You know, over two hundred education projects a year, and the pressure on the team is is immense. But the the energy that you get when you're working at that pace, and the excitement, and the and the teamwork that you get is fantastic. And I'm really lucky that you know we've got a great team of people, both professionals and volunteers. We probably know such a lot about the musicians that are performing on the stage because they're fans in their own right. Um, that, that makes it a great uh, place to visit as well. Just a final thought, and I feel you may have already answered this question, but to anyone listening to this who's never been, what do you say to them? Apart from come. <laughs> um, I, just think, I think it's uh, a real opportunity to get up close and personal with um, music. And I think the other thing about our... Uh, the, the experience, both for artists and for audiences, again, and I, I, I constantly put those two together because between the exchange between artists and audiences is really important in terms of making the event. And actually, what you get in a stables environment is very often a con, uh, an audience that want to listen to an artist. So rather than somebody sitting chatting at the bar, you know, and artists having to project over, you know, a crowd that are just not really listening, which is just background music. The Stables um, experience is very much for real music lovers and an opportunity to hear some fantastic, whether it's classical, jazz, folk, world, rock, pop, some of the best musicians in the world. And, and to hear the clarity of that experience and to really listen to it is, is almost like a concert hall experience. But of course, 
there's always those moments where, you know, the audience is on their feet and they're dancing and singing along. It's wonderfully reverential, the atmosphere here, but it, but it's in no way pretentious. Do you think yeah. that sums no, it up? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're interviewing me and I'm in my jeans and, and it's, it, we're not a stuffy organisation. We're very much uh, a kind of, you know, relaxed, come along type thing. But it, but it is very much about the music is at the heart of this and that is the experience. It's not, it's not a pub where you're going, the prime, primary thing is for having a drink and the music's in the background. It's very much about the music being at the forefront of what we do. It's really good to see you. Um, good luck with setting up the festival. You've got a lot of work ahead of you, but uh, <laughs> yeah, really appreciate and, your time. And, and hopefully we'll be able to shortly release more of the information that we're, uh, we're about to put a whole new pile of events on on. Uh, on sale and 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 make make uh, well a lot of the festivals free so a lot of that work will will, will be released uh, to the wider public soon. Good luck, Monica. Thank you. Still to come here on Turn Up the Volume, Curtis Steiger sings us a live track from his actual kitchen. But first, this is the sound of virtuoso guitarist Antonio Focione, a man who's been coming to the stables since the 1980s, enthralling audiences every time with the grace and the ferocity of his guitar playing. He's bringing his quartet to the stables on Sunday the 28th of May and you will love him. I caught up with Antonio while he was spending some time at home in Italy and he took me all the way back to the beginning when the very young Antonio was already clearly showing that his future lay in music. I was age five and six. I would would play to any surface I could find. I'd play kind of rhythm with my hands. Um, you can imagine how much noise you can make a little boy of age five or six, and that drove my entire family insane. I, 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 I couldn't stop my hands, basically, just doing rhythm. You know, reaching the age of nine and ten, and I think my older brother very cleverly got the hint, and um, I saw him arriving literally with a 500 feet crammed with drums at the back. And that was a present for me. It was best day of my life, basically, when I saw that drum kit. I put it together, just time to put it together. And here, here I go. Basically, I just started playing as loud as I could every single day. And obviously, at that age, as you can imagine, you have no, no conception of what neighborhood would may mean. And uh, yes, here the story of the... There was a shoemaker living downstairs, but he was am- amazing because he, he never came actually and, and uh, confronted me, never did that. So uh, my dad was working in Germany. When he came back, must have been Christmas time, a, obviously the shoemaker told my dad that uh, I was slightly annoying him. <laughs> and um, very cleverly, my dad, a few months later, when he came back from Germany in the summer, I think it must have been the summer, he, he brought at home a guitar, an old second-hand guitar. Get very close to me and say, try this, my son, try this. The guitar looked a bit boring, actually. I'd, I felt a little bo- bit boring, but uh, it took me a couple of years to get into it. 
And uh, once I got into it, I thought there was nothing better than playing guitar. My first lesson was uh, actually a barber. Now, there's a little story about the barbers. So you probably you would like this story. Um, why a barber? I mean, most of the uh, in Italy, most of the barbers for some reason could play an instrument, like usually mandolin, guitars. And I did ask my dad. I said, "Why, why barber?" And then I was. You know, I was taught by Baba at the beginning, and, he, and my dad told me this story and said, um, "Well, in the old days, the the only people that could afford to play music, there were you know people that had money, rich people. There wasn't one exception, the barbers." And I said, "Why the barbers? Because they were the only ones that that didn't work the land, so they didn't have calluses in their hands, and they actually could actually uh, articulate." the instruments, and, and they had a little time in between, you know, um, customers when they come in and they, they bubbled, they have some time to dedicate to, to the instrument. And that's how it happens. Then I heard stories later on that um, in New York, uh, I don't know where, but they, they were trying to do a, some kind of a revival music from Italy, and um, they needed a lot of mandolin players on the whole, you know, the orchestra. Well, that day, there were most of the barbers in New York, you know, were closed. And I imagine nobody got a haircut. You went on to form a band with your brother uh, in your teenage years. You were touring around southern Italy like true troubadours. What did those early tough years teach you about stagecraft? Um, they were not at all tough uh, years for me. Uh, there were there was so much passion there, and when there's passion, you don't feel the weight. Of those hours playing and rehearsing is is all fun, and everybody was older than me, like ten, fifteen, twenty years older than me. But I had the hard task because I had more time than everybody else, and perhaps I had um, maybe perhaps a bit more passion than everybody. I, I used to, you know, with the old uh, turntable, um, trying to learn the bass part, the guitar part, and the drum part, and then. Then you know, obviously, tell everyone how to do that. Really, for me, was a, a mentally um, learning curve. Talking about being on stage, I've read you say about playing the guitar. It's basically the capacity to connect when you're playing, being totally absorbed. It doesn't come very often, but when it does, you know you've lost time and place. And I like that. When that happens, it's so magical and it fuels your wish to play again. Now, I'm quite intrigued by this, Antonio, because the way you describe it, you almost make that moment sound quite rare, that magical moment where everything comes together and you say you've lost time and place. Is it really that rare a thing? It is a rare thing. I wish probably a lot of people will wish it wasn't that rare, but it is a rare thing. It feels like a, an amazing reward of some some kind of... God giving to you after going to such a journey and which is a journey is paid with a lot of effort, with a lot of pain, with a lot of, it, it, it seemed to be a, almost an equation of all this, this time you dedicate to something. And, 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 and at the end is that kind of reward, which is never taken for granted. It doesn't come easily. Um, the first time I remember when he came, it was was I was at home and my mum was cooking and you know everybody was ready. As you know in Italy, when when he comes to eight o'clock, everybody has to be on the uh, at the table. So I was in my room. I must have been there from two o'clock, and suddenly it's eight o'clock. Obviously, when you're playing music, 
and you're in your room, you're, you forget to switch on the light around 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock because it gets dark. But obviously, I'm in that room. I'm in complete darkness. But that's a, that's a thing. Because I've lost time and place, I didn't see that darkness. I didn't see, I didn't remember I was hungry. I didn't know what time it was. Sadly, you know, I was a shock to see the door open and suddenly the light coming through and my mom saying, what are you doing here in the dark? And that really made me realize that I was in another world. I was in that no time, no place. Have you been chasing that hit ever since, that, that same feeling? Definitely, yes. And it, it came, uh, you know, a few times it came. Once it came on stage, I've lost completely time and place. I, I didn't know there were audiences there. I didn't know I was in the, in the venue. And it's so profound that moment it's so amazingly profound and i always search for that and i it always comes when you have a, a an amazing relations with with what you're doing it's filled with, with a lot of stuff it's it, there's a lot of that i can't even just begin you know there's a lot of love there's a lot of but there's so much in there you're describing the real essence of being an artist. You really are a true performer in all the senses. You studied mime, you've done comedy, you're a multi-instrumental musician. And I wonder if there's something which brings all of these things together, perhaps an understanding of the importance of timing, comic timing, timing when miming, timing when playing music. Is that one of the threads that brings all of this together? I guess so. But then again, you don't do these things because you study. Also, those things attract you. No, no, I mean, not. I've been attracted to do miming because I was attracted to do the certain things. And sadly, you know, suddenly uh, in 1991, I just decided not to play music and to do comedy because I just wanted something new. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to to challenge myself to, to kind of a different thing. But then again, all my... Kind of, I don't know how to say, attribute of the things I've learned that came back to me. And I started using those things on stage. So whatever you actually absorb in life, it's never, it's never little boxes. It's, it's good when you combine those things all together. When I'm on stage, I don't feel I'm a guitar player on stage. It's, it's my persona on stage. You know, it's, it's a different thing. It's whatever I absorb, whatever I am, whatever I'm searching. Uh, you're coming to the stables on May the 28th. Can I ask just one favour? Can you please remember to turn your mobile phone off? We wouldn't want a repeat of that Royal Festival Hall incident, would we? Gosh, you seem to know a lot of stuff, yes. That that was an amazing moment. <laughs> Tell us what happened. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, I was asked to do this. Uh, Jazz FM called me to do this gig at the Royal you know, Festival Hall. Um, you know, supporting Phil Collins. And I think, yeah, great. I would like to do that. There's a dear friend of mine called Antonio Montoro. He's, he always arrives a bit late in every concert of mine, but I, I, I like him dearly. He's a great, great guy. And I, I basically, I was so focused on doing a sound check, I left my jacket kind of two, three meters away from me. And, I, I, you know, you know what it is when you do sound check and everything is like, it was packed, Royal Festival Hall, and here I'm going just to the first song. I'm doing the heartbeat, really kind of gentle tune. And the phone goes on. Obviously, it's Antonio trying to get in. I think I must have changed to a, a, a tomato color in my face. I was so, so deeply embarrassed that I had, I didn't know what to do. I just carried on, you know, pretending nothing was happening. But I was, 
was the hardest moment for me to just carry on playing. It was so oh good. And then if it, it, it rang again twice. I mean, I was, it was so embarrassing. I, I will never forget the phone again. Look, leave your jacket by the side of the stage, mobile phone off, and we're really looking forward to welcoming you back to the stables. Looking forward to actually coming to the stables. I used to come to the stables since the uh, late 80s when the stables wasn't even there. And I've been doing that gig for so long, so that brings back memory. And I'll be coming with a wonderful Jenny the Giant on cello, Mateus Noa from Bahia, Brazil, bass, and Jansen Santana on percussion. Wonderful quartet. We'll be playing some of the old tunes and new ones. Antonio, it's going to be fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us here on Turn Up the Volume, and we'll see you at the stables at the end of May. Pleasure. See you soon. Antonio Forcione, who, as you were hearing there, will be at the Stables on May the 28th. Stables.org for all the ticket details. And that's almost that for this first episode of Turn Up the Volume. But I promised you a live track from Curtis Steigers in his kitchen in Idaho. And I always keep my promises. So let's head back there and first pick up with Curtis telling me why the Stables is so important to him. I love the Stables. I mean, I talk about the Stables a lot. Um, even in interviews, people ask me, you know, what's your favorite, what are your favorite venues? And I'll say, you know, it was really fun to play at Wembley stadium, but there's this place in Wavenden yeah. and they'll say, what they'll say Wavenden. I say, well, it's kind of Milton Keynes, but it's not really. Um, I've, I've played, I think I played the stables more, uh, than just about any place in the world. I've played there so many times I've played there. I played there with my jazz group. I played there, uh, as, uh, you know, as a solo artist, uh, with a duo. I even played there with, uh, the, uh, the originators of the venue with, uh, with Dame Cleo and, and yeah. Sir John Dankworth, uh, uh, the late great, uh, John Dankworth, um, I played uh, some sort of a BBC thing with them there. So, I mean, I've, I love the place. It's, it's state of the art. It's, you know, the top notch quality and yet it's so small and beautiful and intimate. You know, you can, you're there, you're right there on top of the audience. I just, I really adore the place. And uh, um, I'm, I love that I'm playing two nights. Uh, I, yeah. I I had to I had to beg them for years. Look, we sell out so fast. Just let me do two nights in a row, so <laughs> I get to I get to hang out and and it's a lovely part of the world as well. You know, I just uh, it's so lovely um, running around and I mean the the Woban or um, what is it called uh, the uh, uh, Woban Abbey right or Woban is it Abbey, uh, yeah. Um, no. yeah I mean it's it's right there. I mean anyway, it's it's really a lovely part of the world and. Um, I'm I'm thrilled to get to play there again with my band. And you're right. You're right insofar as you have these incredible artists, a, a wonderfully knowledgeable crowd, right in the deepest heart of uh, of the English countryside. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm 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 thrilled to be coming back. How about you give us a little taster uh, of what we might expect uh, when you come? Uh, you've been doing these uh, these kitchen sessions uh, since lockdown. I think it's every Wednesday, isn't it? Where you where, where you're live from your kitchen. So you're well used to this. I know the dogs are often uh, a bit of a pain. Your four gorgeous dogs have been known to, to howl and bark, but they're being <laughs> you never, very you very. You never know. They might they might they might chime in here. They've so far they've been all right. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to play a song. This will this is not this is not necessarily how I will sound uh, at the end of May uh, in Wavenden at the stables because it's just me with my guitar this morning and, and when I'm there I will have my wonderful band yeah. behind me but uh, but this is more the uh, this is more the songs from my kitchen approach to a song that probably maybe one or two of your listeners uh, used at their wedding <laughs> one of their weddings anyway <laughs> mm-hmm. 
mistakes like any man But I try to love you best I can I can't convince you Though heaven knows I tried I've tried to make you see To make you believe You're all that matters to me The ground that you walk The air that you breathe Someday you discover I don't want no other, believe me You're all that matters, baby All that matters to me I know that you've been hurt before But that won't happen anymore Just give your heart to me And I'll guard it with my life I don't know what I'd do Baby, without you, you're all that matters to the ground that you walk The air that you breathe Someday you'll discover I don't want no other Believe me You're all that matters, baby All that matters, baby All that matters, baby That matters to me It matters to me <laughs> There's your abbreviated version anyway Absolutely gorgeous Curtis Tiger's coming to the stables on the 29th and 30th of May uh, tickets are selling very fast not many left so if you want them uh, get on to uh, stables.org if you want to find out more about Curtis of course his website curtistigers.com he's Curtis Tigers on Twitter Curtis Tigers on Facebook and the Curtis Tigers uh, on Instagram and you're very active uh, across all those channels so well worth uh, well worth following you there Curtis it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you the dogs have been well behaved uh, and we're looking forward to uh, welcoming you to Wavin at the end of May thank you very much it's really nice to talk with you. Curtis Steiger's bringing this first episode of Turn Up the Volume to a close. I really hope that you've enjoyed it and that it's inspired you to come and pay us a visit in the coming weeks and months. More info about all the events at the Stables can be found at stables.org where you can also find out about volunteering here and all the other ways that you can get involved. Please also seek out the Stables across social media. Just search for Stables MK and do follow this series so that you can get automatic notifications when the next episode is out. That'll be uh, towards the end of May. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave a review too, wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help to get the word out there. Thanks a lot for your company. I'll see you back here in a month. For now, from the Stables, until next time, it's goodbye from me. 